And so um, this Sunday, and for the next several weeks, we're really going to be diving into the deep end, the deep end of the pool here, the deep end of the infinite ocean of God's character, but also in what God um, has done. We're in a current sermon series called In Christ Alone, the life and the church that Jesus builds. And so um, to do that, it's, it's going to be very important for us to be people of God's Word, to, to come together under the authority of God's Word, for God, for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit to be prominent, not only in our thoughts, but also in our pursuits. Um, because definitely for some of us, maybe in this room, um, the, the text that we're going to be covering, maybe it's not been preached to a lot, maybe you haven't spent a lot of time in it, and maybe some of these words are going to be words that you're going to think that I made up, but that's why I want to read them to you and be like, there they are, okay? Um, and so, uh, if you would, stay with me inside of that text. Um, we are looking at the church at Ephesus, and there's this guy named Paul um, who originally um, was a Pharisee among Pharisees. This means that this is the LeBron James of Judaism, Okay. Um, he is an all-star. He is the, the best of the best at that time inside of Judaism, and his name is Saul. He's a smart dude. He's articulate. Um, he's well thought of, and he must have been pretty um, uh, bad dude because um, he uh, really sought out to eradicate this thing called Christendom from the planet. He felt that it was a threat not only to his way of life and his culture, but it was literally a threat against his very God, that it was blasphemous against Yahweh. And so he and a band of other men set out to persecute and even have killed um, these people called Christians. Saul, named after King Saul in the Bible, um, typically um, has this idea of being a great one. You name your kid, it's like if you were to name your kid Jesus. None of us do that because none of our kids live up to the name, right? Um, but naming your kid Saul or David or Moses or somebody like that inside of Judaism would have been a big deal. You were attributing great wealth and prestige to these folks, and so this guy was there, and we see inside the book of Acts that he was even at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. It appears as though that Saul was there even probably holding the colts, or the coats were thrown down at his feet um, as they stoned this man who, as being hit with rocks, is looking up to heaven and can see the resurrected Lord, and he's praising God as he's being beat to death with some stones. All right, Saul stands there. He continues on his journey um, to eradicate. He is a essentially uh, he's declared jihad, which means it's holy war. We hear that a lot inside of Muslim mentality, um, but that's what it is. It is a holy war. We are eradicating these infidels called Christians from the planet as they are trying to come against our very God, the only one true God. He is on his way to Damascus. The risen Lord Jesus Christ knocks him off that horse, he is blinded, he sees Jesus, and in that moment is called to be a follower of Jesus. He is saved in that moment, he is called to be a follower of Jesus, and God instills in him, and over the course of the next um, little few years, actually, um, this calling upon his life to pastor, to plant churches, to be a missionary, and to be the greatest missionary um, inside of the scripture, outside of Jesus, who is the ultimate missionary. And so we see this picture of this man who one day is a, a radical Orthodox Jew and the next day is a radical Orthodox Christian. The very people that he was trying to persecute are now the very people that he belongs to. This is why Jesus, when he looks at him, um, after he knocks him off, he says to Saul, he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because see, we're going to see inside the book of Ephesians that the, the body of Christ is the church. And so that's a really big thing to belong to. It's a really big thing to belong and to be a part of and to understand who we are inside of Jesus. Well, I guess um, Saul probably had many names, like most of these dudes did, but Saul ends up realizing, hey, this whole Saul thing is 
probably not working very well for me. I'm a changed new creation. And so now you can call me Paul. What's interesting about that is Saul means great one. Anybody know what Paul means? Little one. So this man, as we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts and through most of the New Testament is written by this once persecutor of Christians and now is the forerunner leading the charge in church multiplication. And so we see this man in the book of Acts um, as we have talked about over the last several weeks, that he has fallen in love with these people in Ephesus, and Ephesus was this great metropolis. It had within it one of the greatest seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple to Artemis, and she was a, a goddess, a very crazy thing, and you can um, listen to that sermon um, to hear more about that. But Paul just fell in love with these people in Ephesus who were into witchcraft and paganism and all sorts of sexual immorality. But Paul begins to preach and teach there, and God, through the preaching of the gospel, brings revival to this ancient city, this capital city called Ephesus. And from there, God begins to just revolutionize and cause a great awakening and reformation in people who were once pagan and who are now Christians. What was said and believed by the Jews that could never be for them, the promises of God could never be for these types of people. Because if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. And these Ephesus um, people, they, the people of Ephesus were predominantly Gentiles. And yet Paul falls in love with them. And he's sitting in these congregations preaching to, to people who were maybe formal, uh, formerly uh, temple prostitutes or magicians or into witchcraft and the cult and just all sorts of craziness. Imagine if we're sitting here this morning and we know each other's past, some of you do, um, but like really know each other's past here in such a pagan-driven culture. We left off last week as Paul is... Um, heading to Jerusalem. He's trying to get there. He knows that if he goes to Ephesus, he's probably going to get stuck there for a while. So he stops at a port city called Miletus, about 30 miles south of Ephesus. He calls for the uh, Ephesian elders to come and in tears begs these brothers to stand firm, to sound doctrine, to the teaching of the gospel, and to eradicate the church when wolves would come to destroy it, that they would stand firm in protecting the flock. And so that's what we talked about last week. So several years transpire, and Paul, he alludes to this in the passage that we covered last week in Acts chapter 20, that some bad things are probably on the, the horizon for this guy named Paul. And sure enough, by the time that we get to the book of Ephesians, Paul is in prison. He's in prison. And he tells us in the very first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. So he is probably saying his last words here um, to these folks. He's writing this around 60 to 62 AD. Paul's believed to be beheaded in Rome um, around 67. And so um, the, you can kind of see these last words that were written, written to the people at Ephesus. But it was also believed that once this letter got to Ephesus, that it would become a, a circulation of letter, that it would kind of go from church to church to church to church. And so Paul, as he is under house arrest, chained to a, uh, probably a Roman soldier, and, and we got that nice book of Philippians that kind of tells us a little bit about what's happening to Paul during this time. Um, Paul also writes the, the books or the letters to the Colossians and also Philemon. And so we see this really interesting story as Paul's heartbeat for this group of people has never left him. And, and he knows that as, as he has left, what does he tell them? I know fierce wolves are going to come to the church and try to destroy it. See, when inner conflict is happening with inside of your life and the church, we can become on really wobbly ground. Our faith that was once firm is now quickly shaken at the, at the realization that, 
that, man, there is some persecution here. There is some trials. Imagine just for a moment that we were sitting here gathering under the candlelight, and all of a sudden there was militant people that would come into our church this morning and pull out people. Or we'd find out this morning that such and such member is no longer with us because uh, the government has come and is coming against Christendom. This is what it would have been like for many of the inside the early church, but even for many outside of the early church. And let us not forget for many today in other countries, persecution is real. So we begin to struggle with our, our, our identity. We begin to wrestle with the truth of who God is saying that we are. Now what's really cool about Paul inside of the book of Ephesians is that he divides this letter into two sections. So look with me. In, in sections chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul is going to be speaking a, a lot about doctrine. He's going to be speaking a lot about those things. That's why I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. Let's nerd out. Let's get some notebooks. I sent you some links this week. I want to, I want to help you understand this text because I'm telling you, if you don't read the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians and it doesn't wreck you, then you need to keep reading it and I'll go Pentecostal here until you have a breakthrough. Can I get an amen? All right? I mean, you should be reading that. Thank you all. Yeah, finally. Awesome. Appreciate that. Um, this side, not so much. Uh, all right. <laughs> and so we, we see this. I mean, you should be reading. I want to encourage you. It takes about 20 minutes to read all of these chapters, laying in your bed, listening to it daily. I would encourage you to do that. So in that, the first three chapters, he's going to talk a, a lot about heavy doctrine. And I'm going to explain that just more in just a moment. And then if you look inside your Bible, there's a big fat therefore beginning with chapter 4. So anytime you see a therefore, good Bible reading says, what is it there for? So everything after that is because of the first three chapters. And that's where it's going to get really practical. So because we figured out what this doctrine is, now we're going to be able to look at the second half of this year, really. We're going to be really looking at the duty that is caused because of that doctrine. All right, so that's where we're going to get really practical about husbands and wives and, and kids and who we are as a church. But if you start there where many Western American Christians started, just tell me what to do, but you don't understand who you are, I'm telling you, you're cruising for a bruising. You're, you're struggling. You're going to get really screwed up in your theology, and you're going to get really screwed up in the teaching of others of the Scripture. So, the first three chapters, we're looking at doctrine or duty. Or if you prefer, uh, you're going to look at your position in Jesus, and the second half is practice. If you like big words, it's orthodoxy, orthopraxy. If you like smaller words, calling and conduct. And my personal favorites, the first three chapters are about your identity, our identity in Jesus. And then the last three chapters are about the incarnation of that identity. Inside of this first 14 verses here, this is by way of introduction, part two of this sermon will be next Sunday. Um, and so to set us up for that, we will see also inside of these very 14 verses a very Trinitarian view of things, okay? We're going to see kicking off this morning that God is active in your salvation, all right? And that he has is, he is got a big thing to do here that we can see inside of these 14 verses, the very Trinity, the Father, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see that this is planned by God. Your salvation is planned by God. Two, that it is accomplished by Jesus. And thirdly, we're going to see that it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. You see all of that? 14 verses. Can I get an amen? Again, struggling. All right. Y'all help them, okay? More coffee. Okay, so we, we see inside this passage, let's kick into this, okay? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of who? God. By the will of 
God, Paul, an apostle. An apostle is one who is called specifically. This is kind of big A, capital letter A, apostle. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. There are only 13 of those. I don't care what you watch on TV late at night. There are only 13 large A apostles. They have seen the resurrected Lord. He showed up at their crib and said, you are my God. And the evi- or you are my guy. And the evidence of that specific calling is seen in all these miraculous things that they can all do. Okay, 13 of those, no more he or she's of those ever. But Paul states here, this guy, again, once a killer persecutor of Christians, is now an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of Paul. No, that's not what it says. It says, by the will of God. Paul was not running around as a young child in Tarsus going, when I grow up, I want to be an apostle for Jesus. Okay, this is not what was taking place. Paul's life was on a different trajectory. It was in a different aimed um, progression, and yet Jesus shows up, wrecks this man's life, arrests his heart, and this is done not by the will of this man, but it is done by the will of God. Notice, what does Paul call us? He says, to the sinners who are in Bowling Green. Nope, that's not what he says. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. See, brothers and sisters, for us to understand our, the incarnation, for us to understand the, the duty that we are to do, the orthopraxy that we are to accomplish, you must first understand who you are. And if you think that you're a bunch of sinners trying to do work for Jesus, then we're misreading the scripture. See, the reality is, is because of Jesus, we are saints. You are saints. We are, we are, are, are not sinners trying to be saints. No, we are saints who sometimes sin, and there's a big difference there. We are deemed from heaven that you are a saint, and a saint is not somebody that has, uh, you know, simply accomplished this by doing a lot of good works, and the Catholic Church finally says, you're a saint. No, if you are saved this morning, you are a saint. And he tells them, by the will of God to the saints, I'm writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. These people are declared saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. See, brothers and sisters, the goal here is not big. Not the goal. The goal here is not personal stardom. The, the goal here is not to be a church that, that people Google. All right? Anybody ever Googled your name in here? And you get really weird people <laughs> that have your same name. Okay? The goal here is, is not to have, a, a, you know, Instagram following or to have so many people listening to our podcast. There, 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 there's, there, that's not the goal here. The goal of Christendom, of your life and of our lives collectively, is because we are saints living in a specific place is to be what? Faithful, faithful above all things. In the land of pragmatism and consumerism, the, we will all be um, led astray and be drifting toward and be bending toward this idea of being something other than being faithful. See, because being faithful is not always popular, but it is holy and it is right. And so Paul is writing these letters to these people that he loves. He calls them saints. They are in Ephesus. They are faithful. But notice key phrase here that I'll come back to in just a moment, and you should circle this, square it, you know, draw clouds around it, you know, if you color, this is where you would color, in Christ Jesus. So these people are positionally in two different places. They are physically present inside of a city, and yet simultaneously and triumphing over where they rest in a city, they are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So again, I'll come back to that idea of in Christ Jesus in just a moment. He says in verse 2, grace and peace to you um, from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, we see this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first inclination that we have, that the Trinity is involved here in our salvation. We see here in this very moment, it says blessed. 
This word means to praise. So praise be, some of your other translations may even say, praise be to the God and Father. Bless, praise, worship be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this as he continues on. He's going to say in this very verse as well, who has what? He has blessed us. So we praise, we worship God, and then he has given something to us. He has blessed us, and this is where you would want to circle, highlight, scribble, color, in Christ. In the matter of three verses, we have already seen the term in Christ twice. We've seen it twice. Who has blessed us in Christ. Hence the name of our sermon series is In Christ Alone, the life and church that Christ builds. This is probably the most important statement in all of Ephesians. It is the most important tension that you and I need to be living in right now and evaluating this idea of who is this Christ and are we in him? Because the blessings, the promises come to those who are in Christ. In the first 14 verses, Paul is going to mention this little phrase or this, uh, a form of this phrase uh, 11 times. And every time that we come to it, I want you to hurt, circle it, you know, write a circle around it, highlight it, whatever you want to do inside of your Bible. He's going to say this ultimately 40 times in the entire book of the Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. See, brothers and sisters, if, if, if you are, are not a Christian, if Jesus has not saved you, if you have not been converted by the Holy Spirit working inside of your life, we need to understand that we all start out in the same place. And that same place is, is that there, there are two heads um, that we kind of rest under. You either rest under your first father, who we call Adam. And we see from the book of Genesis, and then we, we can pick this up, and we see this illustrated throughout the entire Old and New Testament. Even the, Paul himself, in, in writing to the church that is in Rome, begins to pick this up as well. This idea that because of our first father, Adam, that because of the sin that he committed, that sin has been imputed to each and every one of us. Now, inside the book of Ephesians here, in a few months, we will get to the point of the depth of, of that depravity that has been, we have inherited, okay? But for the sake of today, you need to understand this, that this morning, that all of humanity is either resting still under their first father, under Adam, belonging uh, to him, that means that we are separated from God, that we are... Um, we are uh, separated from his love. We are experiencing his wrath. That The Bible even tell us, and we're going to learn this, that, that we are children of wrath, that our father is the devil. Okay, this is not a good place. And yet, the Bible is clear in this portion, as well as in other portions, that if you are in Christ, that you are in a blessed position. This idea of being in Christ means that we are united or we are in union with, that he is the vine, that we are the branches, that we, we're going to see this illustrated over and over, that, that we as the church form the body and underneath his head, and who is the head? Jesus is the head of that church, that we have unity with Jesus. That our identity is, is those of being saints, that those of um, that we are, are identified as being faithful and that we are identified first and foremost by being in Christ. In Christ. The Bible tells us here inside of this passage, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. That if you are in Jesus this morning, that everything that God has to offer Christ is also given to you. Everything given to Jesus is also given to us. And we will cover this in the upcoming weeks. That's why I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. This idea of every spiritual blessing carries with it the connotation that, that every, that all, that, that God is, is not withholding anything from his children. 
That is without exception that Jesus is, is, and being united with Jesus means that, again, all of the lavish wealth that there is inside of the, the spiritual realm and will one day be a physical realm is given to God's people. Now, we know, because we're sitting here and we're like, man, but there are a lot of things that I seem to be lacking. We need to understand that this is what people have called throughout the history of Christianity, the now but not yet tension. That from a heavenly realm, guess what? You need to get this this morning. Your identity is, is you're as perfect as you're ever going to be. Because you're in Jesus, and Jesus can't become any more perfect. You need to understand this morning that your identity is that you are as redeemed as you are ever going to be sitting here right now in those seats. That you're as saved as you are ever going to be sitting here if you are in Christ as you are ever going to be. You are completely justified. See, because why? We have union and communion with Jesus. And one day, as Jesus returns, all of these promises that we are divinely and have been decreed, placed, decreedly placed upon us will come to complete fruition in the return of Jesus in our glorified state. So, when we look at a guy like Paul, though, though he is longing for that day, he is living the current day resting in that identity. And brothers and sisters, that changes a church. That changes a life. When we begin to live now, like it's forever. Eternity and eternal life is not something that one day you are going to get once you die on this planet. No, eternal life is given to you and I that are in Christ right now. And he is calling us. He is laying upon these people. Notice he doesn't just go into, well, how's the weather there in Ephesus? No, he, he dives into this deep understanding of who these people are. And he begins to remind them of who they are in Jesus in the, in the midst of great chaos, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of wolves trying to come into the church. What does Paul tell them? He reminds them of who they are in Christ. In Christ, it is all about Jesus, brothers and sisters. Your life must be defined by this idea of who you are in. And you are either in yourself, which is in Adam, or you are in Jesus. And the marks of being united with Jesus should be evident on every one of our lives. There should be no question of whom we follow. And yet many people are out there professing to be united with Jesus, and yet there is a, even as family members, there's this wrestling with, we don't really know about these folks. And if you're in Jesus, we'll get more into this even next week. There is a calling. There is a life to be lived. I want you to, this morning to just meditate for a moment on the idea that every spiritual blessing has been given to you in Christ. Everything you need is, is not coming from your spouse and your kids and your paycheck. Everything that you really need is there. It is in Christ. We have all that we need in Christ. In Christ. These idea of what every spiritual blessing. And then what Paul's going to do from verses 4 through 14 and really through the rest of the book is he's going to tell you all those spiritual blessings what they are okay so we're going to talk about the first spiritual blessing here this morning and i'm going to pick back up with it for part two of it next week what does he tell us every spiritual blessing and then the first thing he wants you to know about of those spiritual blessings is verse four even as he chose us in him. There's our, our special case there. There's where it's all about. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
So he goes on, he's saying, okay, here, here's every spiritual blessing. The first thing that I want you to understand is the first thing that is rolling off the top of my lips is this. Even as he chose us in him, we're going to talk about before the foundations of the earth uh, next week. We're going to camp out for the rest of our time on this idea of even as he chose us in him. Chose us in him. The word chose here inside of the Greek is where we get the word election, chosen, election. Even as he elected us in him, even as he chose us, even as Paul chose himself for himself. That's, that's not what it says. It says even as he, meaning God, chose us in him. This means that it means to select. It means to, to pick oneself. It means the called out ones. It means chosen for oneself for a, a larger number. It means to select something out of mercy and grace. I love this dictionary, uh, Christian dictionary um, definition of chosen or election, what is known as election. It says this, election is the gracious and free act of God by which he calls those who become part of his kingdom and special beneficiaries of his love and his blessings. This is what it means, or this is what is often called the doctrine of election. And I want you to understand, this is not upper crust. This is deep, but it is not upper crust Christianity. It's basic, foundational Christianity. That, that Paul, inside of this, is, is, uh, he is saying from the very beginning, he says, I'm an apostle. Why? Because this is the will of God. And I preached a sermon on the sovereignty of God several months ago. If you've not listened to that, I would encourage you to do it. Not because it was awesome, but it, it lays the foundation for where we are today, that God is in control. That God has shown mercy on those whom he should not show mercy to. That he has chosen out of a, a, you know, a reprobate, just terrible, wicked group of people that God has chosen some for his love and to be beneficiaries of his grace and his purpose. That they are the called out ones. That they are the chosen ones. Who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to non-Christians here? No. I would encourage you, if you're evangelizing to your non-Christian friend, the first thing that you do, don't do is sit down after you drink coffee and say, are you chosen or not? Because let me tell you, a wicked man or woman will never understand this. This is after years of spending time with these folks. Having an understanding and relationship, a biblical worldview. And in the midst of their chaotic lostness and, 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 and being beat up for being Christians, Paul reminds them uh, and, and shows them once again that the, the curtain is being unveiled to really understand what God is doing. He, I'm, I'm a simpleton. When we say that God has chosen you, we are saying that God took initiative with you. God took initiative with you. You did not pursue God. The Bible is very clear on that. It says it kind of over and over and over again, especially in the book of Romans. No one seeks God. I, you know what that means in the Greek? No one seeks God. Like, I don't have any kind of, like, contextual, like, woo, mystery. Like, that's what it means. No one seeks God. And yet, what is Paul telling these people? God sought you. God took initiative with you. If you are a lady inside of this room, you grow up reading stories and watching really terrible movies with the same four people in them. Over and over and over again, it's typical, they're now all starring in Hallmark movies, okay, because they didn't make it 
all right? And, and you are ingrained in a lot of young ladies, this idea of, of man, if I'm wanting this Prince Charming, I am wanting a man to pursue me. And I want you to know, it, it can become a God. But the general basic line of that mentality is a biblical one. This idea that you have been pursued by God Almighty. He is the, the knight in shining army. And he could have selected anything that he wanted to. And yet this God chose his bride. And if you are in Christ, you are a part of that bride. And he has pursued you. He has put up with your antics. He has put up with your lack of being able to control how much you talk. He has been put up with the, 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 the ability that, that you want to be in control. All of these things, sorts of things. And yet, what has God done? God has pursued you. He has chosen you to be a benefactor of everything that he has given Jesus. I think that that's a pretty powerful thing. I think that's a pretty beautiful thing. We see inside of the Bible, we see God electing large groups of people. We see God electing specific people. And we see God um, electing and choosing individuals for salvation. This is not a Reformation concept. This is not a new, what we're, uh, some people have titled, we're, we're praying for a new Reformation. But this is not a new Reformation concept. It is not a Reformation concept. It is a biblical concept. From, from Genesis to Revelation, this is the picture that we see. Um, inside of the Old Testament, we see God, what does he do? He, he takes upon himself large groups of people for a specific purpose. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says this, this is in the picking of the Jews, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was, it was not because you were more in number or than any other people, that the Lord, but that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, he'll say in chapter 14, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples, you, excuse me, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Without God's sovereignty, without him doing as the Bible says, the Lord does as he pleases, without the control of being able to select this group of people, we would not have Judaism. And and yet God is saying, it wasn't because you were the best looking. It wasn't because you outnumbered people. It wasn't because you were the tallest or the smallest or the most fierce or or you had the best economy. He's, He's essentially saying because they were like Paul, they were the little ones, they are my people. We see God selecting inside of the Bible large groups of people, and, 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 and we see him also selecting individuals for a specific cause. Did he not choose Adam? Was Adam a piece of dirt going, pick me, make me into a man? Nope. He wasn't. Adam wasn't inside of, uh, Eve wasn't inside of Adam going, I'm the rib. Make me. That's not what was happening. No, God sovereignly chose to do that. And, and, and as we continue on inside this scripture, Noah, what is Noah doing? He is, he's a pagan. Noah is, is not a Yahweh worshiper. He is not a God follower. And yet God shows up on the scene to, show this, to save this man named Noah, tells him to build a boat in a desert. We see later on in the book uh, of Genesis, we see a, a man named Joseph, do we not? We see a man named Abraham. And what's really interesting about Abraham is Father Abraham, many sons, right? Jews, uh, he is the father of, of all the Jewish nation. But when God shows up to pick Abraham. What is Abraham doing? Worshiping other gods. You know who Abraham was before he was a Jew? A Gentile. Have you ever thought about that? 
He was the first Jew. So he was something before that. You're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Abraham was not on the side of a mountain crying out to this God. No, God showed up. He chose him for a specific purpose. We see him doing this over and over and over again with Isaac and Jacob and Moses and, 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 and David. That God selects large groups of people. He also selects individuals for a specific reason. The greatest of those is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is known as what? The chosen one. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Later on in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 35, And a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is a New Testament concept. This is not just found in the letters of Paul. This comes from Jesus' mouth himself. He'll say things like this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. And in those days had, had if, and if those days had not been cut short, so he's talking about his return, tribulation, these sorts of things. He says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Will it be cut short for everybody? Will the blessings of it being cut short for everybody? No. The, the blessings of it being short will be for a specific group of people whom he has chosen, and those are his elect. We're talking about personal salvation. We see in, you cannot read the Gospel of John without seeing this mentality over and over and over and over again. John chapter 6, John chapter 15, John chapter 17. These are coming from Jesus's mouth. In John chapter 15, verse 16, he looks at this ragamuffin group of disciples, and what does he say? You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointing that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. Chosen. If you're in Christ this morning and there is fruit of you being in Christ, what a beautiful truth. I mean that God would have mercy upon you and I this morning. We should be wrecked to the very core. Get that this morning. You have been chosen. If you are in Christ, you deserve the full brunt of divine wrath. The cup of wrath should be poured upon you. There is nothing within yourself that is any greater than, than those who would not be chosen, but for some reason, according to his great will and his purpose, he has seen fit to give you grace, to choose you, to make you a benefactor. An enemy is now a benefactor of the king. What, what beauty we see inside of this passage. Paul talks about it over and over and over again, and then we see um, even Peter. He's writing in 1 Peter to a group of people that are just being, I mean, beat up, broken, persecuted, drug out in the streets for following Jesus. And notice the first thing that he talks about in chapter 1, verses 2, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I mean, let me, let me scale this down. Peter steps into a hospital room with a man who's on a ventilator. or He's, he's hooked up to all those machines, but... It's, it's not looking good for this brother. But there's been evidence of, of gospel fruit that this man is in Christ. And Paul is essentially taking a dying man, a brother in Christ, by the hand. And he looks at him and says, 
You're chosen. See, because on your deathbed, that's what you're wrestling with, my identity. Man, uh, where am I at here? <laughs> Take it beyond sickness. Take it to somebody. Man, if they start persecuting us as Christians, we're going to find out who the real remnant of Christianity is. And those are... Those are going to be the people who, who stand firm because we're going to be asking, there are going to be a lot of people asking questions, Lord Jesus, I can't believe I thought we were, you know, things are good here. We have good favor with the government, all these sorts of things. They start persecuting us. We're going to find out who true believers are. And, and the thing is, is, is he could say anything at this moment. Peter could say anything. Paul could say anything. And yet, what does he do? He takes him by the hand. He says, I know that you're wrestling with your identity. And it'll be really easy for you to give up right now, Todd. But you're chosen. Why? Because people who understand that they're chosen by Almighty God are a dangerous, unstoppable force that can, while they're being stoned, look up into heaven and say, bring it on. You're not afraid to die. Paul knows he's about to die, folks. I mean, in a few years, this brother is going to have his, his head. Historically, church history says that he had his head chopped off. Why? Because he stops refusing, saying that Jesus is Lord. All you have to do is recant, Paul. Say Caesar is Lord. You get to live. You're a Roman citizen, and the brother will not shut up. No, Jesus is Lord. I am in Christ. And because of that, whether it's sickness, pain, sorrow, loss, Everything taken from you, even your very life, your children taken from you, you can rest in your identity in this deep doctrine of knowing beyond the shadow of doubt that you are chosen by God. The words chosen and elect were never meant to bring fear, brothers and sisters. They were always meant inside of Scripture to bring comfort to believers. And let me tell you, it is only the whispers of sin, Satan, and death themselves that would cause any other action or thought or emotion to come to us when you hear the words chosen and elected. Because never inside the Bible is the idea of, of, of fear there mentioned around those words. You need to understand this idea of the doctrine of election it's an Old Testament teaching. It's a New Testament teaching. And historically, it is the historical Orthodox Christian belief. It was believed up until Augustine that this was what was supposed to be happening. That the doctrine of election was true. Why? Because it's, it's in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament, it's got to be true for us. And this guy named Pelagian, he comes on the scene. He tries to convince Augustine and other people, no, this is, this is not true. It's, man has the choice. He had a small group of followers. And that was it. The orthodox Christian viewpoint was this beautiful thing called the doctrine of election. He was able to work its way into Catholicism, and we saw what happened to Catholicism. Until what? The Reformation came. And one of the key components of the Reformation was to get the people of God back to this understanding of God is sovereign, He is Lord, He is in control, and if we are His chosen people, then it doesn't matter what is happening in this world, and we can go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sin, Satan, and death begins to work inside of the minds of some. And easily be led astray by, by wolves. And, and there's a man that comes up on the scene, Jacob Arminius. He was like one dude with a few followers. It gained no traction. None. Until about the 17th century by a guy named John Wesley, who I love. I believe that he's a brother in Christ. Brother Charles, they wrote some great songs. 
He's best friends with a man that's been influential in my life named George Whitfield. But he picked up Arminianus' thoughts and theology and spread it through many different denominations inside of the Americas. What's also going on inside of the 17th century, if you know history very well, is something called the Enlightenment, where it became all about man and that we're in control and it's about our intellect and that it's all about our freedom, our will, and a lot of American policies. Again, some shadowing of Scripture, but a lot of it is driven by this mentality of the Enlightenment. Even to the point that where in certain circles, if you were to stand up, and if I was to go to my home church today and preach like I'm preaching to you right now, they would be willing to run me out of there as heresy that this is not in the Bible. I've never heard these things before. And I want you to know if you've never heard these things before, it is because the church and us as pastors have not been good shepherds. We have not preached the whole counsel of the Word of God. It's our desire, even if we do so, not so good sometimes, but here at Mission is to be faithful, not spectacular. If you want to grow a church right now inside of America, you don't preach on these things. We know at Mission, more people have left Mission Church because of me making a statement that God's chosen people to be saved than any other thing. And yet, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the earth. In conclusion, how do we respond to these truths? I'm going to give you some more in just a sec uh, next week. How do we respond to this idea and this beautiful doctrine called the doctrine of election? Well, let's respond like the Bible. Let me paint a picture of what's happening here. Paul's writing these people. And he tells them, hey, you guys know who I am? I'm Paul. I'm an apostle by the will of God. I'm writing this specifically to, to you guys who um, are in Ephesus, to the saints, to the faithful that are there. Uh, thank you. And then immediately, inside of the Greek, it's as though Paul um, totally becomes consumed with these truths. From, from verses 3 to 14 is the, the longest sentence inside of the New Testament. It is the longest run-on sentence in all of the New Testament, all of the Bible. There are 202 words run-on sentence there. My, my mother-in-law, she's an English teacher from way back, did really good, helped me out a lot in college. Thank you. Uh, and, and because of that, as a good English teacher, I do know this. You don't write run-on sentences, Especially 202 word run on sentences. So, so let's, let's break this down. So Paul, he starts writing this letter, and then all of a sudden he starts thinking about all the spiritual blessings. And then he's like, I mean, he just lets this out. I mean, just he's like, and, and God did this, and then 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 Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, Holy Spirit did this, blah, 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 grace and peace to you. All right, let's, what's this next part? Okay, and for this reason, I, Paul, because I've heard about your faith, I mean, this brother, it is a song, could you imagine, we sing a song here on predestination, we'll, we're going to sing it next week, but could you imagine, this is a hymn, it's the doxology, it is a, a hymn of praise, this brother is writing a letter and then breaks into praise chorus, because he is so overwhelmed at the beauty of the magnitude of these spiritual blessings that God has Save the humility. This, this truth should never drive us to arrogance. It should always drive us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to our very knees, thanking God in humility for what God has done as this man spouts out this praise and worship. Notice what he says in, in verse 3. Blessed. What does it mean? It means praise. In verse 12, he's going to say all of this stuff, and then he's going to say, verse 12, to the praise of his glory. 
And he's going to keep saying all this stuff. And then in verse 14, he's going to say to what? To the praise of his glory. I mean, this brother will not shut up about the sovereignty of God. Martin Luther said this doctrine is essential for the Christian faith. Otherwise, listen to what he said. I cannot worship, praise, thank, and serve God since I do not know how much I ought to attribute to myself and how much to God. It therefore behooves us to be very certain about the distinction between God's power and ours, God's work and ours, if we want to live a godly life. Charles Spurgeon, my homeboy, says this, election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. That's what it does for Paul. I want you to know that I believe that you can not get this and be a brother and sister in Christ. I do not believe that this, this grasping this today or not grasping it is the definitive thing of your salvation. There are many brothers and sisters who are yet to get this. And they are brothers and sisters in Christ. So I do not believe that it affects your salvation, but I am convinced that it does affect your worship. It does. It affects your identity. Notice what's missing from this. Notice, there's nothing negative. Paul doesn't go into an... I mean, there, there is nothing from this that is negative, argumentative, or divisive. Paul doesn't seem to be concerned with the logic and making sure that he's you know, got all of these good illustrations to illustrate God's sovereign grace in choosing people to be saved. There's none of that. He doesn't go into a, a systematic or apologetic approach to making sure that he can win the argument that this is true or not. And the thing is, nowhere in the Bible will you find that except for maybe one place, and that's Romans 9. There's a great sermon on our webpage all about Romans 9. You can go li listen to it, and if you're like a lot of other people who heard it that day, they left our church. <laughs> they really did. Paul... That's the only place, and, and here's the thing. You know where it gets negative toward in, in Romans chapter 9? Toward the person who would question God's sovereign choice. He literally says, who are you, O oh man, to ask God and to question God and his sovereign choice? Paul believes it. He states it. He celebrates it. I believe that there's a place for, for diving into detail. And again, myself, Pastor Todd, Pastor Justin, we welcome these conversations. We can tell you our own stories and wrestling through these as new Christians. But I want you to know that this is not Paul's concern. Nowhere except for maybe Romans 9. It's not Paul's concern. His only concern is worship. His only concern is, is worship at this idea of that every spiritual blessing has been in the heavenly places that has been given to us in Christ. And that begins with this idea that God has chosen us in Jesus. From the viewpoint of Scripture, the idea of being chosen by God was not a place of division, but it was a, a contrary. It was the central place for unity and comfort in lives and in the church. Comfort and insurance. Paul is not writing an argument. He's not trying to be defensive. We get no inclination that the Ephesians, you know, split over this idea. We have no inclination at all of any of the churches splitting over any of this sort of stuff. It is, it is not a fight song. It is a worship song, election amongst other spiritual blessings is something to sing about. And that's what this brother does. 
is driven to humility, is driven to worshiping God and not questioning God's sovereignty, but finding peace and comfort and hope and assurance and resting and knowing that the evidence of Christ being in this man's life, the fruit of Christ, the, the Holy Spirit, the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit is, is inside of this man. It is inside of the church. He's going to tell us they're being faithful so we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the, the fruit of the Spirit is at work in these people's lives. And because of that, no matter what they're going to, they can worship Jesus even while the blades are being struck across their very necks. So this morning, Will you worship Jesus? This morning, will you ask yourself the question, am I in Christ? Am I in this Christ? Let's pray. Lord.